it went straight down the middle. Then it started to hook just... So as a European, Sandy, would you say that the two you won, the Open Championship and the Masters, would be the two you most would have wanted to win? Oh, by far, yeah. By a long way, that's... um, Obviously, to win your own championship um, is a, a great thing to get the monkey off the shoulder and and uh, to win that. I mean, I never thought it was going to happen at some stage. You know, when you, as a young boy, and you see them out of good players, the big names, uh, it was going to happen. But, it, you know, it happened to me. And um, I'll always cherish that moment. And then to win the to the Masters as well, there was... Uh, and I always felt comfortable playing the course. Yeah, that was the thing. You know, if you feel comfortable playing the course and you know you're going to return maybe the next year, not always guaranteed, but you can return a few times to play it, that's a course I feel I can do well on. So, Sandy, after that uh, great Masters victory, you, your 1988 wasn't finished either. You, <laughs> as you've always said, you're playing the European Tour. You went back and won the Dunhill British Masters that year, beating Nick Faldo and Mark McNulty. Yes, yeah. Around the, um, what was the name of the golf course? I've got it in my mind. I can't remember it right now. Woburn. Woburn, yeah. Yeah, Woburn, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting final round there with Faldo because uh, he wasn't playing particularly well, and I kept following with bad shots as well. It was one of those, who's going to win this tournament? It was... Uh, you know, if he skied a tee shot, I went and topped the tee shot along the ground kind of scenario. It was just like, <laughs> you know, it was a bing bong. And then the last hole, I was so negative on the driver. I think I hit like a five iron off the tee. It was a par five hole, but it was quite bouncy. So I just hit a five iron. I think it was five iron, six iron, and then wedged it in and one by one shot or something in the ends. But it's not the kind of stylish finish you would think, well, he's going to drive a 375 yards, you know, hit an eight iron into the green, and thank you very much. No, it was five iron off the tee. I was so, because uh, it's all in trees. You're in a very, very tree-type golf course, and it's bouncy. And you could really mess up with a bad tee shot, lose a ball, out of bounce on the left. There was all sorts of scenarios. So I thought the only best thing I can do is tee up with a five iron and, well, it went about 220, 230 yards. It wasn't like it was going to go in about 180 or 170. So yeah. it did good enough distance. And I did, I did what I had to do. Is, you know, and then I played for the wide part of the ferry with the second shot and I had a, sort of like 110 yards in for the third shot. So you know, I can do that easy enough. I mean, Vanderbilt could have learned from that, couldn't he? Uh, yes, <laughs> he could have. Boy, isn't that the truth? Let's go on to the World Match Play uh, Championship. Uh, that was later that year. And, uh, Sandy, I'd probably put your record in that event up against just about anybody because in addition to the victory in 88, uh, you also did quite well four other years with runner-up finishes. Yeah, I've been uh, match play uh, five five finals, I think it is. Which is. But I think the one that really sticks out in my mind is not so much winning it after five years, it was it was drawn out against Faldo. Um, I don't know which year it was, but I was drawn as the two British guys to play against each other. And I was I had one of those morning sessions. It was two rounds of golf at that time. And um, I was, I got to the last hole, hit a five iron into about four feet, looking like I'm at least going to go from six down back to, or some five down back to four, which would have been quite nice. Faldo at the green, but hold from like 50, 60 feet for an eagle. 
and I miss mine. So I go to six down and um, not looking good for lunch. I didn't really enjoy lunch very much at six down and uh, went out in the afternoon with a, a different putter, back my old favorite putter, and um, at a hole about an eight footer on the first hole to save going uh, seven down. So I managed to stay at six down. And to cut a long story short, uh, Faldo hold a bunker shot uh, from almost an impossible place at 16th. Otherwise, he would have been beat three and two. Boy, so oh, boy. Wow. Ooh, so that was a big turnaround. Yeah, so he hold a bunker shot, and then obviously I missed the putt for the birdie from about 12 feet, which I was a little cheated off about, and had to go down the 17th. And um, he got a ruling, get the ball dropped in the tree because the signboard was in the way. And it looked like he was going to get a win or a half out of the hole. I wasn't particularly playing the hole very well. But I hold about a 40-footer for a birdie to game over. The Boom. Teams, uh, <laughs> two and one odds. <laughs> but uh, there was a big turnaround, big, big turnaround. And that was probably one of the most memorable matches I've had on an afternoon from being in the doldrums in the morning knowing that, well, can I just go out there and survive and not get beaten by Mr. Fowler by 10 and 9 or like a Toby Shannon sort of thing. <laughs> right, and, right. Uh, so it wasn't. It turned out in favor for me in the end. But um, I'm sure Nick will remember it very clearly as well. But it's just momentum again. You know, match play, you know, I, I didn't look like I was going to do any good. And all of a sudden I started putting birdies in. And when he made bogeys i made pars and won a hole and when he made pars i made birdies so it all happened very quickly and that's match play you never know until the the fat lady sings yeah yeah so we got we got uh, a, a bit more we want to cover with you sandy so uh, uh anxious to get to team play and some other things uh, but you did have three more wins on the european tour uh, and now we're sort of 1992 ish you're age 34 what happened to your form um, I can only see, I think 20 odd years later on or 30 years later on, you can kind of look at it and you can say, uh, you know, I started to do some changes with the swing. I think I got tired as well. I think the, you know, the mid eighties were busy, busy years and I'm still playing in America. Um, I got tired. Um, and then I can very man clearly when I played in LA, I've been out in the tour for about five or six weeks and I, I just lost to Calcavecchia in LA, but not playing very well. But I, I lost in the playoff, uh, the Bob Hope, um, which was something I was a bit annoyed of. Uh, so it was like a four-way playoff. I think Steve Jones won that particularly that week. Yeah. But the golf in LA wasn't good. Um, started getting the blocks and not just not be able to clear or get the club face squared impact. And, you know, you just brush it off as like, all right, we'll get down to Florida swing coming up. You play Doral, you know, I'll get, uh, I'll dig it out of the dirt as you think you do. And played terrible at Doral. And I went to see Jimmy Ballard, who was sort of, you know, sort of coaching me at the time, Jimmy, and do a bit of this and change and that. And so I played the Honda the sort of following week, didn't do very good in that, missed the cut. And then Bay Hill, I played not very good and missed the cut. So there was a momentum thing and confidence was just um, rock bottom. And it, you know, mm. it lingered 
a lot more than and I thought it would ever do. You know, I always thought, oh yeah, we're digging out the ground, we'll turn it around in a, in a month or two months. But it went on and on and on. And I suppose someone like Ian Baker Finch could sort of maybe give you an idea that you know you go through thirty-two tournaments in a row of missing the cut, which is extreme, but it happens. Um, I had no yeah. idea. You know, I, I wasn't drinking anymore. I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't taking drugs. Um, yeah. I probably need, looking back 25, 25 years, 30 years later on, I think I should have just taken some time out would be the biggest thing. Just take time out, go and reset your goals, um, do a bit of work on your goal swing, but just relax. I just started to try and work harder because things weren't going very well. The idea was to work harder, and it obviously didn't work in my case. So for our listeners, uh, you know, any anybody that plays golf recognizes, even at an amateur level, how fickle this game can be. Oh, yeah. But uh, we're talking about a guy who Seve Ballesteros was once quoted as, as saying, this guy is the greatest God-given talent in history. If everyone in the world was playing their best, Sandy would win, and I'd come second. Yeah, hmm. and I, I still get embarrassed when I hear that now and then, but uh, it is true. It, it does come from Seve's uh, own mouth, and he's not one for giving a lot of compliments away to certain players or whatever. As you know, Seve's very much himself. He's his own boss. But to come from Seve is very special, you know, and I've played against him and with him from an early age, and uh, he's come on top. I've come on top. We've, we've shared our, you know, tears. We've shared our friendship and um, to come from him was um, you know one out of a thousand that came out the blue and uh, and it's been mentioned quite a few times and I, I still get sort of my hair going back in my neck when you think about it but uh, that's it you know I didn't um, I didn't promote that to make him do it he did it on his own accord Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me, one in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Before we get to team play, I, I want to take you back to one more Masters memory because I believe in 1986, you played in the final round with J.W. Nicholas. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, uh, you know, you get memories uh, as you get older and some just stick in your mind and uh, a lot a lot of people remember who played with Nicholas in 86 and I've got to try and remind them that there's a little guy there with red trousers you might see going past the camera every so often but that that was me and um, I was a it was a great thing to watch um, and you know he was a he was age 46 at the time. So, he's, you know, he's not a spring chicken anymore. He's regarded as sort of over the hill at age 46. Well, he proved that wrong. It, uh, he played those last nine holes in, in 30, I think it was. 
um, with majestic iron play, confidence. But one thing that really stuck out in my mind is his uh, almost like your Bernard Langer type stuff. You know, he, a bad shot was deleted quickly. Um, his concentration was 100%. His, his eye focus was good. He wasn't blinking away, looking at crowds, saying, you're, you're annoying me. Or the, it, was the, it was just like he was playing a practice round with at the Masters on the last round, and nothing changed speed-wise, uh, breathing-wise at all, even down to the last four or five holes where he knew he had to try and put a score in. And that's the tough one. You, you got yourself in position, but you still got to finish the job off. And uh, yeah. the 18th flag wasn't on an easy, easy pin. It was back right. And I think he was playing like a five or four iron for his second shot. And he knew he hadn't hit it right when he hit it. It was online, but he, he was like, you could hear him say, Jack. And uh, it was only like two yards off from being perfect. And then he, he putted to show how much he's in control of his hands and his breathing and his confidence. He putted from probably, what, 40, 50 feet and left it about yeah. six inches short of the hole going in. So, you know, his, his control of his emotions were absolutely 100%. And that's the sort of thing that sticks out uh, in my mind, watching him performing, uh, a man doing his business really good. And I get people ask me, were you, were you nervous playing with him? Yes, I said I was a little bit apprehensive. They said I was more nervous about screwing up on his scorecard afterwards. And I was, <laughs> I was really nervous on that because, you know, I don't want to be the one with the finger pointed. You got our man disqualified because you scored his scorecard wrong. <laughs> so it just gives you a little point. That it's not so much playing with him, but uh, that's probably the only time that I've really played with him in a tournament would be the 86 yeah. Masters. But what a, what a, what a witness to, to watch, you know, as a spectator, as a player playing with him, um, his mannerisms and, um, his thoughtfulness as well, because you know, quite often you could have easy put it from a foot and a half, two feet. He said, "No, I'll, I'll mark this because the crowd will be going silly." Yeah, so that's a, right. But it gives you an idea on the golf course how how sort of um, things happen quickly. We've got to the seventeenth hole where he had that wonderful twelve footer putt downhill to another birdie. And that's that uh, yeah. that picture that's been taken with him holding the hand up and dead out of there. Well, a, a few seconds before he actually hit that putt, we could hear rumors in the crowd, Seve's in the water, Seve's in the water. So I'm, because I'm, Seve's playing the 15th at the time, and there's no trees there, so you just open space. You can see Seve oh, 160 yards away or something. And right. I look over to see if Seve's in the water, and all I see him is 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 finishing in his follow through. His, his ball's still in the air when they're saying Seve's in the water. So the the speed of transportation as far as trouble was that quick. <laughs> the crowd were going, oh, he's in the. They've obviously realised he's missed it, the shot. He's in the water, but the ball's still in the air. I'm not even seen him finish his follow through yet. This is quite amazing. Boy, oh boy! So um, yeah, I is. think Jack might have seen that too, and you could hear the whispers of the crowd saying. Sebi's in the water. Not a good yeah. moment for him, but obviously pleasing for Jack. Yeah, and, and Bruce, uh, you saw Jack Nicholas up close quite a bit, didn't you, over your career? Yeah, he was. Uh, I, I was. Uh, he's the one guy that I've uh, played with that had 
like you said, Sandy, complete control of his emotions. You could walk off the tee with him and talk about any subject while you're walking down the fairway. And when when he got into the area where he felt like he had to take control of his golf game, yeah. I mean, it was just like a curtain come down mm-hmm. and he did what he had to do. And then you could talk with him again yeah. between there and the green. Yeah. And he had his son, Jackie, carrying the bag as well, which is he was getting quite nervous which was, the way around. Yeah, Nicholas, yeah, his son, oh, Jackie, yeah. Bet he was. Yeah. So, Sandy, at the top of the show, you sort of alluded to a little bit of your Ryder Cup experience. And uh, for our listeners, kind of take them back to this era because uh, you first appeared on a Ryder Cup team in 79. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people look back and 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 see who was coming of age then, uh, sort of the big five of European golf with Sandy Lyle and Nick Faldo and Ian Woosnam and Seve Ballesteros and, and Bernard Longer. And... Uh, I just see that as sort of the golden age of the Ryder Cup because it really was transformed from the time you started in 79 until uh, really the last team you were on back in, uh, I guess it was 1987. It came full circle, didn't it? Because, uh, you know, the Brits and then the Europeans uh, were losing pretty consistently up until that time. As you mentioned, you start out the first few years, you get a little closer, but you see the tide turning. Just take us through that whole era of Ryder Cup. Well, I mean, my first one obviously was 79, and um, that was when Europe was involved. Um, it was a big thing because it was always pretty much Great Britain and Ireland was always the Ryder, was the Ryder Cup. Now it's going to be Europe involved. I think it was a good move. I think the Ryder Cup could have died a death before that um, because it was just so one-sided. I mean, in a small country of Britain and Ireland against America, it's not looking good on paper. And with Europe involved, I think it just balanced the books and it made it to what it is now. And I could see that the matches were much closer. Um, I could see at the end of the week, that America's only winning by one point or two points. So we were we were right up there. And I think it was only a matter of time. I think the tide would change that we'll, we'll get a we'll get a victory because the, the top four or five, like Sevi and myself, Aldo, you know, we, we were all young and we're all comers of age. And the strength on the top end of the uh, of the team were really good. We were still lacking the lower end, but with Europe involved, we had some good players that can still hold their own. Constantino uh, Rocker, you know, and Panero, they all want to challenge to play against some of the best players in, in America. No matter if it was overseas or it was in, in Britain, and, and the Belfry was one of the great big breakthroughs where it all, all sort of unfolded yeah. that particular week. Yeah, so you're just going in succession, uh, uh, start at the Greenbrier. Uh, John Jacobs was the captain for the Europeans, as he was at Walton Heath in 81. And then you go to PGA National, and uh, while it w- didn't turn out your way, uh, Tony Jacklin, as we talked about earlier, I think really changed the game. He was up against Jack Nicklaus's captain for the U.S. side, and while it was a very, very close U.S. victory, uh, it was quite clear to anybody paying attention that things were going to be different. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that was one of the things when Jacqueline took over, we did fly out on Concord, which was, you know, a, a nice little bonus to have. And um, we didn't need the cashmere sweaters that much because in, in Florida... <laughs> right. 
<laughs> I bet uh, the they were Pringles. The stuff, and the, yeah, the rest of the stuff was all good quality, the suitcases, the golf bags. So you, you felt like you were in a proper team, you know, playing. Yeah. And it was really down. I mean, the tournament could have gone either way. I didn't have a particularly good week. Um, I lost to Calvin Pete in the, in, in the singles. He just wore me down of his straightness. Um, didn't do very well in the foursomes. I think I was playing with Bernard Gallagher or whatever. So my record there, that thing wasn't great. I would like to have contributed a, a few points, but I didn't. But that's Ryder Cup for you. It's not a guarantee. But at the end of the day, it was right down to the base of the last hole between Lanny Watkins and Sam Torres. It was right there. Bang. Yeah. Um, so we couldn't wait, really, um, for the next Ryder Cup to come along, which was going to be a few years' time at the, the Belfry. And it all unfolded really good for the, and the crowd got excited as well and the noise and everything else and it was uh, quite a spectacle to see yeah and then and then you come back here and uh now we're at jack's place at Beerfield mm. village and uh again it's it's tony jacklin uh for the third time in a row jack nicholas and uh Lanny Watkins, uh, which was one of our first interviews, Bruce wasn't. Lanny Watkins describes this as the hardest loss of his entire yeah. career. He felt so bad losing for Captain Jack Nicholas at his place. Yeah, he sure did. He made a, he made a strong point about that fact that, uh, that they really wanted to win right there, but didn't happen. Well, in, in my memory, that particular, I know we've actually won the Ryder Cup at that time to play with Nicholas and Tony, both big names in the game of golf, to um, to win the Ryder Cup in his home ground of Nicholas's um, was my sort of highlight of the Ryder Cup. Of all the Ryder Cups I've played in, that was the one that really stuck out a million miles away. And I also contributed uh, a few points for the team as well, which makes it even sweeter because I played with Langer and we played against Lanny Watkins and Larry Nelson. And both those two players have never lost in the Ryder Cup matches. They have just got a 100% record until they met Langer and myself. And we got them in the morning time. I think it was the foursomes. And I don't know what the result was, but we won two and one or whatever it was. Bum, bum, bum. And then lo and behold, in the afternoon in the, in the better balls, we get to the same pair to play against. And uh, I think Lanny Watkins will even talk about it to this day that he can't believe that in the better ball they'd finished the last five holes in five under and lost ground to Langer and myself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he goes, I can't believe we lost that match. No, <laughs> was lost in the, we we I think we were one up playing the last hole or something, or maybe even all square playing the last hole, and it was almost dark in the evening time, and I did it into about about six feet, really good shot, and it's getting dark. But Langer's still trying. He's, he's like a, another Nicholas. You know, Langer's still putting his, his practice wings in. He's still focusing. He did it. And he's into about three and a half feet. So I mean, he's, he has, yeah. he's not giving up. And so Langer was probably the number one partner I've had in, in that particular week. It just worked so sweetly. And to play against two hot dogs that have never lost. It made it even sweeter again. And then obviously to, to win the Ryder Cup and the, the home ground of Nicholas, which was even sweeter again. And, you know, nice to see that Tony's got a winning speech to do rather than a losing speech. So that was, that yeah. was the big turn 
for for me as far as the the way the Ryder Cup was going. We we were heading in the right direction. We've got the good players. They're all playing well. And the lower end is still a little flaky, but we're, you know, we're, we're carrying them through. Yeah, historic win for, uh, uh, as it was the first win on U.S. soil ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was um, a lot of celebrations went on, I think, with the caddies and various things for the next several days. So uh, to look back on it, it's still, to me, I mean, I've played five Ryder Cups, you know, win or lose. Um, that one, I've played, I've, I've actually been qualified for six, but I turned the sixth one down due to bad performances. Uh, that was probably the hardest phone call ever made to Tony Jackman to say, look, I've given myself the last couple of weeks a chance, but I think the way it is, the way I'm playing, my confidence level, and I'll be shot. You're in a team as well. That's the thing. You're in a team. Yeah. And I knew that the other next team player was going to be Christy Connor Jr. He'd had a good year playing. So his confidence level is good. I said, well, that's as nice a player as I want to see in the team would be Christian Connor Jr. It's going to be his last year. He's a good forces player. He's a good guy to play with. He's entertaining. And whoever plays with him will love to be with him as well. So I, I forgo my position and let him have it. And as it was, he, he did well. He, he played against couples in the singles. And I think either he halved or he won a point. So it all came out good in the end. But, um, yeah, the winning at uh, Muirfield, I think, would be the highlight of, uh, of the Ryder Cup for me by a long way. Yeah, so you had a chance to be side-by-side side with your buddy as his co-captain in 2006. You never got your turn at captain. How, no. how, how much does that hurt? No, I think it's something you can say, well, you know, it's, the game of golf is never always perfect. It's never a smooth road. There is turnings here and there on the way through illness or for whatever things happens or a tragedy somewhere. I think, you know, people say, well, you, you should have had your chance. I should have had my chance, but it didn't, it didn't materialize. Uh, I think I was overseas quite a lot. Um, I didn't put myself down to be involved with the committee as far as um, having meetings and things at Wentworth and the Bat Ryder Cup or whatever. So I was almost an uh, alien from that. I think if I'd been in the committee and been involved a bit more, yeah, I think there would have been a good chance, but I always thought it was a bit fruitless for me because I'm playing in America most of the time, and I can't be there for all the meetings. So I, unless, like nowadays, we can do everything from Zoom or do it on a right, right. So you couldn't do it then. That wasn't uh, that wasn't feasible. So I think that part of it plays a big part. And if you look at all the past Ryder Cup captains, they've nearly always been in the Ryder Cup committee. If it's not Monty, if it's not that, it, it's uh, Thomas Bjorn, if it's not Thomas Bjorn, it's Darren Clark. If it's not Darren Clark, it's Mark James. If it's not Mark James, it's McGinley. I mean, they've all been in the committee, the selection committee, and that's the way it's okay. been. And I, I haven't been in that selection committee. I could have been if I wanted to, but I, I sort of said, no, I'm, you know, I'm committed to playing in America quite a lot. I'm going to miss most of these meetings. So that's the way it sort of materialized. And I think at the end, it sort of backfires on you. So that, that's my sort of my sort of thing about the Ryder Cup. It's not because somebody's had a vengeance against me. It's not going to happen. It's just the timing of it. I mean, why isn't Peter Alice or why didn't um, Peter Roosterhouse be yeah. a Ryder Cup captain? Could have easily been. But when you've got Tony right. Jacklin being a captain for three years and I think uh, Bernard Gallagher being a captain for three years, 
those spots become a little watered down. Um, why didn't Larry Nelson? We talked about it with a friend of mine just two days ago, Larry Nelson not being in the Ryder Cup captaincy. I mean, there's somebody that's been in Vietnam. He's won major tournaments. I he's know. a, you know, he's a, he's a very nice person. There's no reason why he shouldn't have been a Ryder Cup captain, but never did. Right. You had an opportunity also to represent uh, your country in the World Cup and uh, in the Dunhill Cup. Uh, so quite a bit of team play uh, in addition to the Ryder Cup. You played, uh, I should say, you play on the uh, uh, European Senior Tour. You started at age 50 and uh, and got a win in 2011. That was your first win in 19 years. That had to well, it's very good. easy to remember. It's the only win. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've been I've been a little disappointed on that side of it. But you know, when you you become the fifty year old, you're the youngster. As Bruce would know, you're the youngster when you turn, and you expect big things. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I got somebody called Langer up in front of me, which is he's a hard man to beat. Man, and uh, he wins most of the trophies and stuff. And uh, if I was coming second, I'd be quite happy. But I wasn't even doing that. I just. My my game is um, just not sort of good enough to to win tournaments right now. Why it is? Uh, is it confidence level? Yes, probably. Is it physically? I'm still physically okay. You know, I can still get the ball out there a good distance. So, um, as I say, I'm not taking drugs and I'm not drinking. I'm getting plenty of sleep. I'm doing all the right things, but not the results. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, you know, uh, and I alluded to this earlier in terms of playing uh, age-appropriate shafts, but you did go on to win uh, uh, two more majors, didn't you? <laughs> the British Open uh, uh, hickories, yeah. Yeah, that was uh, – Yeah. That just come with a friend of mine I do golf design with, um, and uh, he had an old bag of clubs on the side. He said, oh, yeah. I said, what are you doing with these? You know, Scott McPherson, his name. I said, what are you doing with these things? A little pencil bag with about six clubs in it. He said, oh, I, I play hickory every so often. You want to come up? We go down uh, a Musselburgh Golf Club, which is actually where the Oakmans played five years, just up the yep. road in, yep. in Edinburgh. So I went out there, and uh, I mean, his are really old original ones. I mean, they, they weren't nice. They were, they were, they were, <laughs> they were the line of the clubs were all wrong. And it, 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 but it gave me a little insight to playing golf, hickory. And um, word got around, and he said, I've got somebody in America that makes good hickory clubs called Tad Moore. Now, Tad Moore, actually, is history. You can, you can put Tad Moore's name down on the and read about him. Uh, if it's making putters for Wussy when he won the Masters, he also gave a lot of information to Scotty Cameron how to design putters and how to make putters. So... He's in his late 70s now, about 78, and uh, he makes hickory clubs and still makes them to this day as we speak now in Alabama. So um, he made the Australian blade irons, designed the Australian blade irons, which I won the Open Championship with. So he was working for Dunlop back in the 80s, and then, he, then I went to Mizuno later on. So I, I kind of lost contact with him and until... They started playing hickory golf, and he makes uh, sort of frequency-matched hickory golf clubs. Um, Amazing. So he turns, he 
he bought uh, he bought the lathe that makes the curry clubs, uh, the shafts. Then he turns them all himself. He buys the heads in and then uh, fits the the shafts in. And so I've got a match set of hickory golf clubs from a sand wedge through to a spoon come driver. So there's about eleven clubs totally, from the spade huh. spade mashery to a niblick, all the different names, uh, driving iron. Right. Um, but the, the shafts are matched to, to my strength as well, because I obviously want them a little thicker and a little bit more robust. So uh, he matches the shafts up by putting a weight on a board and then flicking the shaft. And then the, obviously how much the shaft, if the shaft's very soft, it'd right. be very, very, da, 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 da. If the yeah. shaft's very taught, it'd be like that. <laughs> so it's, it's, stone age, it's stone age technology, but it, it works. And yeah. there's a massive amount of torque on the shafts. You can hold on to the club head and the grip, and you can twist probably a three or four or five percent twist on it. That's what you call torque. Yeah. So it needs a little bit yeah. of confidence and knack and how to get the timing right, especially when you get in the rough. Then the ball can fly out in all places. You've got a say a pitching wedge, you're trying to maneuver it out of a heavy lie, it could go out anywhere. But um, you know, I've, yeah, I've played a couple of hickory tournaments which is the british open seniors well it's actually the british open hickory championship not really seniors really it's all about women playing boys playing older players pros playing it's really an open open and it's been played up in uh, near carnoustie i can't remember the name of the golf course now so i played it twice i think and i've played it uh it's over two rounds and uh, I played it twice and won it twice. And uh, I tell you what, it, it's nerve-wracking. <laughs> I, knew, <laughs> yeah. I knew the one year I was only with another, because there's no scoreboard. You have no idea what you, what, who's doing what and where. But you hear rumors that somebody's got a whatever. And you think, well, I'm only one over par with so many holes to go. Can I hold on to it? And, uh, yeah, it's nerve-wracking. Very, very nerve-wracking. But uh, also very pleasurable at the time, because you you playing with something way back in the sort of 1820s, you know, it's uh, yeah, the yeah, technology often. wise. And I often, I mean, I, when I go out now, I've, I've got the plus twos on, I've got the socks up, I've got the, I've got the proper shirt with the tie, I've got the waistcoat. I don't have the proper golf bag yet, but I, I look the part now. <laughs> well, I'll share this. I'll go. share this with you briefly. I, I took delivery of my first set of sort of starter set of hickories uh, two yeah. weeks ago. Okay, and uh, I noticed as I hit them on, you know, on the practice tee that uh, they didn't all behave alike. No, no, no. no. As you know, <laughs> as you know. So I sent a little note to Mr. Devlin, and I said, yeah. "All right, here's the weights, here's the swing weights that I'm seeing, here's the length and loft and and you know everything." And I said, how do I get these to behave a little bit more like each other? <laughs> yeah. So he gave me some yeah. suggestions and I got the lead tape out. And, and, you know, so I think I've got them more where I want them. Yeah. Yesterday, as I was doing some of the preparation for our discussion this morning, I get a text and I start seeing all these pictures of this long putter being made for me because I okay. putt with a long putter and I, there's yeah. no way I could putt with a short one. Uh, well, it was Tad Moore. Oh, was it Tad? Was it, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. he's nice. He, I'm playing his clubs, and he is making me a aluminum-headed long driver 
sort of to the specs of the Scotty Cameron I use in terms of weight and, 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 you know, angle and, and so <laughs> forth. So I'm really looking forward to it because he's coming this weekend. We have, I'm going to play in my first Hickory tournament starting on, uh, on okay. Monday. So That's I'll, good. I've, my wife gave me some plus twos and so for Christmas, I don't know if they fit there or not, go. but uh, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's good. I mean, I, I see, I speak to him at least twice, uh, twice a year and I will see him uh, in about three or four weeks time because of playing a tournament in Alabama. So yeah. he often yeah. oh, good. He pops down. So we always have a good old natter. Yeah. I mean, he's still yeah. a golf enthusiast and, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little saddened that there's nobody else really to take him place. You know, when he if he snuffs it tomorrow, I don't think, as far as I know, he has a, an apprentice that's going to follow it on. You know, it'd be quite nice to right. to yeah. see those clubs. And I've got quite a few sets. I've had, I must have about six sets of them now. That um, they're almost like a PXG. No, they're not cheap, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Though. You have them for a lifetime. You know, it's uh, and it's, yeah, it's a lot of too. fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm, I'm going, uh, I'm going to the UK for a little golf this summer. I'll be over there for about five weeks and I'm going to take my hickories over and I intend to play uh, sandwich, St. Enoduck, Presswick, Dornick and the old course with hickories. And you can go off the forward tees as well. (laughs) Good. That's right. Good. I'll need it. (laughs) Well, I I just had a a new driver delivered to me some years ago now in Alabama off uh, of Tad. I've just had it. There's a deeper face one and a da 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 da. And I happened to be on the range at the time. I was trying out and I saw Langer across the other side with the uh, the track man. And I said to Bernard, you wouldn't mind hitting this for me and just see what sort of results you get. So he hit one and he actually hit it really good, like a kind of good height with lots of run on it. And he hit about six in the end. And they were really good hits with a modern ball of course, because it was the range ball. Yeah. And he hit six good shots. So he ended up clicking on the uh, the track man, and he was only down ten percent on his distance. So you can imagine this German head sort of scratching. This is not possible. <laughs> so it's the uh, all that technology, you know, from complete opposite end of the scale, when you've got titanium and graphite and and longer shafts with a modern club to hitting something that's much shorter. Uh, not say twice the yeah. weight, but a lot heavier. Uh, he's probably using a 60 gram shaft. I've got a probably 200 and something gram shaft in the wood <laughs> yeah. and a smaller yeah. head and only yeah. down 10%. So, you know, interesting. That's Amazing. Good. That's pretty good. So tell us about that phone call you got back in the 2012 time frame that uh, informed you that Sandy Lyle was going to be inducted with Peter Alice into the World Golf Hall of Fame. Mm. Yeah, that was uh, that was something special. Um, and Phil Mickelson, I think, was on that list as well. And uh, very clearly, you can you know wait in the waiting room. That was about as nerve wracking experience for me because I'm not really a natural after dinner speaker like a ferret, you can just go out and blurt for an hour and get well paid for it. I and mean, I'm somebody that's behind the scenes and all of a sudden I've got to stand up at a podium and um, I'm looking at notes and that and I've got to, you know, perform. And uh, and I was looking in the waiting room and I think Peter Ellis was off first and Mickelson 
And uh, I'm looking around the room and I can see in the far corner, Mickelson's got a whole handful of notes and he's flicking these notes rapidly and he's looking up in the sky and he's muttering words like he's trying to remember things and that, that, that. I've got my notes and I'm just kind of going through them maybe so often. And I'm looking over <laughs> at Peter Alice, gin and tonic. No, no, no notes. I'm looking, no notes. I'm looking at his hands to see if he's got a couple of suggestion notes on his hands. Nothing, nothing at all. Never had something in his pocket, but drinking a gin and tonic. Quite happy, yakking away with his wife. And that's the good. He's, I know he's a genius when it comes to that kind of thing. But I thought he's got to have some sort of backup somewhere. I'm looking all over his hands and, you know, how do you do it, this kind of thing? And off he went and he brought the crowd down to complete hysterics by the end of his speech. So uh, he did well in the end and I got through it, nothing brilliant, but uh, it's an experience that, um, and also to be recognized really more than else. To yeah. be, uh, you know, I've gone through a bit of a quiet spell for quite a few years and all of a sudden, you know, not winning tournaments, but also to be recognized as a world golf hall of fame. And, uh, and I, I cherish that an awful lot. Yeah. I bet you do. And in 1987, you got a MBA, MBE. I'm MBA, sorry, yeah. which is a, which is another great. Uh, that's another great thing for uh, to happen yeah, to a person. Every every year, the Queen has a list of people who get either Sir Nick Faldo or someone like myself is a way down the ranks at the bottom of the list called the MBE, which is as low as you can get, but it's it's a it doesn't mean anything. It's an honor. You don't pay any less tax. I still pay taxes the same way I did before. <laughs> right, but right. It, it's just the, it's an honor. It's an honor to have or a piece of paper and a, and a and a little medal thing you get to wear with the MBE on it. And there's a lot of people that would love to have an MBE. And uh, I got to meet the Queen um, at the inauguration or whatever. So I got to see with the Queen. I've also had lunch with the Queen several months beforehand. Um, I know she has garden parties, and uh, and the garden parties at Buckingham Palace can be up to about three thousand people. But you are <laughs> you are at the garden party. You do have the Queen as your host, but you never see it. You might see it from you know a hundred yards away, but she's there. So I'm invited yeah. for a lunch at Buckingham Palace. So I've gone through the gates with a driver, and we get up and announce the advent. Mr. Lau, you, uh, the table plan is up there on your right. You can see where you're sitting. So I'm expecting this huge eight-foot by eight-foot board with about 50 tables, and there's only, one, there's only one table. So I'm sitting at the Queen with a grand total, including the Queen, of 12 people. So it gives you an idea. So that's a, that's a proper lunch. That's not a garden party where yeah. you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So I got to talk to the Queen, and, and, and the Queen, I gather, loves those sort of evenings or afternoons with their special guests. And, you know, you have people from a Donald Trump could be there sort of thing. Or I was, I was out there as professional golfer. That was my, my name tag was Sandy Lyle Professional Golfer. But the other ones could have names behind it, like a dentist, you know, BC, 4, 3, F, this. And, and <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Quite, a, quite a remarkable lady. It is. And she's, what, 95 now? It's pretty amazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. Pretty amazing. So, Bruce, do we have time for our couple of uh, usual questions with our guests? Oh, we can't let Sandy go without asking him one of the one of our favorite questions. So, Sandy, I'll I'll go first. Bye. If you if you if you could have a mulligan, where would you take it? If I could have a mulligan, where could I take it? Um, God blimey. I've got to think. I've got to think of this one really hard now because I've, I've usually, when I've been in contention, I've managed to sort of um, manage to finish get it finish done the job off. But is there something that's left a bitter taste? Good God! Uh, uh, is it America? Or is it? Uh, is it the Masters? <laughs> God blimey! I'm really struggling here trying to think of a mulligan. I mean, people you just go like that. Oh yeah, if I had that shot again, I'd be. Uh, yeah, maybe I'll come back to that one in a minute when I can think of uh, it. It's it's a it's the hardest one to answer, anyhow. Right? But but Mike's got one for you. Yeah, so this one may be a little easier. So, if you knew when you started as a professional what you know now, what would you have done differently? Um, I would definitely stick to the same swing what I was born with and I worked out and not doing multiple changes. I've seen that with Tiger and Greg Norman have done, you know, swing changes. And I think um, knowledge is a big thing. If you, if the, and there's so much knowledge out there these days now, and there's no excuse for bad golf swinging. I mean, if you see that in overseas players that have played from far afield that don't have university to go to. They've, they've come out with good golf swing because there's so much knowledge out there and YouTube and things like that. So, I would not, um, you know, the swing I was born with, if I could just maintain that for a longer period, I'd be very, very happy. And finally, as we wrap up with you, Sandy, how would you like to be remembered? As a good guy, as somebody who's easy to approach. And I think that's mentioned in Toby Shannon that have never changed. And I like to be remembered that way. I think, uh, I think, you know, even... Arnold Palmer up to his end of the days. It's so easy to talk to in the 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 sort of dinner we have on the Tuesday night at Augusta, and um, it's to get him to sign some balls or some flags. It's never an issue, you know. It's even in his latter years, you know. I often um, I had some golf balls signed from. I, I had a dozen balls that presented in my locker by accident. I was with Callaway. And one of those dozens must have been on the radar and actually had Arnold's little motif on it, the flag. Oh, the umbrella, sorry. So I've always I yeah. kept that for year after year after year, this sort of – and I gave a, a few away to friends, but I had a half a dozen or six balls left. And um, I finally remembered only like some years ago before he passed away that I had them still in my house here to actually put them in the car and have them – and then Arnold signed them for me. So that's a nice thing um, to to be remembered as easy to reproach. And to your question, Bruce, I think the one mulligan I would like to have is maybe not serve haggis at the dinner. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> at the master's dinner. Well, listen. Well, Sandy, we want to, we want to say how much uh, we've enjoyed having you today. You've been a great guest, and uh, we we thank you for your time, and we thank your wife for all her right. help oh, as well. Yes. It's a big part. <laughs> 
Good, good. I'd love to talk to you. And it's uh, very refreshing to remember all these good things and not so good things. And But overall, it's all good. Sandy, thanks for being with us. And uh, maybe one day we'll have a hickory game together. I've got them here as well. You know, I've got a set here ready to go. So <laughs> you name it. All right, good. Well, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway. It went smack down the fairway Then it started to slice just a smidge off line It headed for two, but it bounced off nine My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay Yes, it went straight down the middle Quite a way